0: Good to see everybody this afternoon. We've got a good crowd. Uh, We hope that you're comfortable, and uh, we hope that you don't have trouble staying awake as these 2.30 services are often a challenge. Uh, We're going to be continuing today our series of studies on rightly dividing the Word of God, and so uh, we're actually at part four of that. Uh, there's been a group of us that have been getting together and studying some of this in more of a private setting. And so uh, a small portion of this will be some review for y'all, so uh, just be ready for that. But also during those studies, in our discussions, some questions often get asked. Uh, and so I thought it would be good to take maybe some of those questions that we talked about and uh, look at Scripture regarding some of those questions today. Uh, And just to give you a heads up, we are going to do some review. Maybe that's tedious. It seems like it's only been about once a month, so maybe it's not quite as tedious. Uh, But I want to start every one of these studies with this first thought. Uh, And I know that we've done this over and over, but there's a reason for that, because repetition is learning and repetition is memory. And I want everybody to remember this, because it's so important. And just as Brother Franklin talked about, Uh, How sometimes we in our spiritual life get in this rut where we think we're doing things pretty good and someone like him challenges us to maybe look at ourselves and we go, maybe I'm not doing so good. I will tell you that even as an evangelist where it's my job to study the Bible and study with other people, I get in a rut in my personal study. And I want to encourage you today that no matter what we talk about today, not to lose that. That... There's a need for us every single day to spend time in God's Word and spend valuable time in God's Word. And I think there's a difference. And you say, well, any time in God's Word should be valuable. Well, it's not valuable to us if we don't have any understanding, okay? So sometimes that comes with time. We may have to read something 10 or 12 times. So is that valuable time? Absolutely. But if we're just going into God's Word with some preconceived idea, trying to prove some agenda, is that valuable time? No. If we're trying to find some uh, thing that we can take out of context to defeat some argument that we're in with somebody else, is that valuable time? No. Valuable time is when we go to God's Word and we're asking this question, what is the truth? What's the truth? And so that's what these studies are designed to help us with is how do we get into God's Word and find the truth? And again... The key is study. That's the key. You're not going to find truth by just simply reading a chapter every now and again. Reading once a week, once a month. It takes more diligence than that. And that's really what the word study means, is to have diligence. There's a sense of urgency, a, hence, a, 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 hence, a sense of haste. Effort has to be put forth. And that effort leads us to the Uh, idea that's perpetuated here that Paul says is rightly dividing the word that is making a straight cut being able to dissect God's word to put it in its proper place and understand it correctly and that's the goal so as we go through this don't lose that we ended our last study with the idea of context why is context so important and I would say that context is the most important aspect of Bible study so let me give you an idea to illustrate this uh, it's somewhat of a simple-minded idea. Uh, but I want to give you a phrase, and then let's put it in its context. All of your friends are going to die. What would you conclude from that statement? Maybe I have something against your friends. Maybe they're going toward a, uh, some perilous situation where an accident might occur. There's a lot of things we could infer from that statement. But what if I put it in this context? All of your friends are going to die when they see the new ring that I bought you. Then we go, oh, he's making an analogy. It's a figurative statement. Context is important. On the one hand, you think I'm a serial killer. On the other one, you might think I'm a very good gift giver. So I'd rather you have the other mindset than the first. Context is important. Putting phrases and paragraphs and, in our case, verses within their context is important. We're not going to take time to go through all these again. What we're going to focus on today is this one right here. When was it written, Old Testament or New? And we're going to talk about the Old Testament today, and uh, we're not going to necessarily talk about the, the vast differences between the Old and New. We might do that at some other point, uh, but today we want to spend our time looking at the different uh, dispensations of history that we see in the Bible. Now these dates are very estimated, very approximate dates, so uh, don't get hung up on the dates. They're just estimates. Going back from where we are sometime now, after the cross in the Christian age, if you went back 4,000 approximate years from Christ to the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And there was a time period where God uh, spoke to the people for 2,500 years, and when He did that, He did not give them a written law. You ever notice that? Now, if you took your Bible and you went from Genesis... All the way over to Exodus chapter 20. I want to show you something. That is 2,500 years of history right there. 2,500 years. Plus the uh, introductory pages and index and all that. (laughs) That's a very small amount of writing though. For the largest dispensation of time that we've had in God dealing with his people. And then you have 1,500 years of history. From Exodus chapter 20 all the way, still going, to Matthew, that's 1,500 years. So we've got very little details about the first 2,500 years and a whole lot about the next 1,500 years, and then we have the New Testament, which isn't quite as detailed as even the Old. So my question is, why? Why do we have so many details in the Old Testament and As we think about the Old Testament, that was a period of time where the law that was given at Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai governed God's people, the nation of Israel, all the way from here to the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we say the Old Testament. And if you open your Bible and you look, it's divided in two sections, right? Old Testament and New Testament. But I want to challenge us today. We're going to get into some semantics Uh, And I don't necessarily like semantics, but I think it's necessary for our understanding, especially when we start uh, talking about what was done away with and what exists uh, and things like that. Romans 15, 4. For whatever things were written before, what do you think he's got in mind here? Whatever things were written before, well, obviously before means in the past, What's Paul talking about? Well, if you take this, put it in its context, he's talking about what we would call the Old Testament. And he said those things that were written before were written for who? Us. And I don't know if you ever have moments where you feel really small. But here's a moment that should make us feel small. That big, thick section of pages that I just showed you of 1,500 years of history was written for who? Us. It was written for us, for our learning. Why? So that we, through patience and comfort of the Scriptures, the Scriptures here referring to the Old Testament, might have hope. So here's what often happens. I, think, I don't really think we have to go into too much detail today to say the Old Testament was done away with. You know that, don't you? We all understand that. The Old Testament was done away with. But uh, we're going to hit on that just barely. But, but I want to talk about some of the implications of that. You know, some have taken this position that because they were done away with, uh, that the Old Testament has no value for us. And so what they'll say is, well, I don't spend any time reading and studying the Old Testament. I just study the New Testament. Okay, we'll talk about that in a moment. Some have even gone so far as to say, well, I just worry about the letters that were in red. Okay. And I've even heard people say, hey, those letters, they're in red. They're more important, are they? I recognize when we see the words of Jesus Himself, we ought to go, these are important words. But what in the Bible is not important? And if you really want to be fair with it, everything in the New Testament is God through Christ through the Holy Spirit inspiring the Apostle. They're all the words of Christ and God. And so God directed these men to write these things and to take a position that the Old Testament is not important because it's been done away with. I think if we really look at what Scripture says about the Old Testament, we might change our mind about that. So what is the Old Testament? That's one of the questions we want to ask today. And secondly, what can the Old Testament teach us? And thirdly, what are the limits of Old Testament teaching? So these will be the three areas that we look at this afternoon. Now when I say, what is the Old Testament, you may be thinking, well, isn't that obvious? You just talked about that there's two divisions in the Bible, old and new, that is uh, Genesis to Malachi. Now that's typically what we think of as the Old Testament is a collection of 39 books written by various hands but authored by one God, through divine direction. Now if I read that too fast and that's too wordy. Here's what I mean by that. We recognize these 39 books from Genesis to Malachi as being the Old Testament. We also understand that many different people through many different generations and from many different backgrounds and different families for that matter wrote the bible but that was all directed by god and that's what scripture teaches us second peter chapter 1 verse 20 knowing this first that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation for prophecy never came by the will of man in other words man did not will the scriptures it never came by the will of man men did not interpret the scriptures We interpret scripture when we read it, but that's not what he's talking about. He's saying when they received it, when they wrote it, they weren't interpreting what God said. They weren't writing by their own will or by their own mind. In fact, they were writing, they spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. They wrote what God directed them to write. And someone says, Ian, this is only about prophecy. Okay, let's think about that for a moment. God inspires a man to write a book. Is he a prophet? Yes, he is. It's all prophecy, okay? It's all prophetic because it's all inspired. So don't try to make a distinction in that way. Now, we're going to make that distinction in a little bit, but not in that way. All of the inspired writings that we have were written by the hand of what we would call a prophet. Directed by God himself. Okay, Did y'all see that in the back? I'm just kidding. I know you can't. (laughs) Okay, so this took some time. Uh, This is a chart of known references in the New Testament to the Old Testament. You can't see it. That's okay. We're going to blow it up. Okay, so in the four Gospels alone, there are uh, 228 known references that Jesus or someone else made to the Old Testament. Now... Let's back up to our first thought. Is the Old Testament still valuable? Well, Jesus thought it was. You say, well, of course he did. He was speaking to people who lived under the Old Testament. Okay, I'll give you that. But there's another reason. Most of these references we see are not references that Jesus gave to the law, although he did that a few times. Most of them were concerning what was either going to happen in the future or what was happening right then and right there. Here's what Jesus said about the Old Testament. Now he was talking to some Pharisees who uh, perceived themselves, if they were to look in the mirror and take an assessment, they would look at themselves as basically doctors of the law, as scholars. And so Jesus referred to their scholarship here when he said these words. He said, you search the scriptures, the Old Testament. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. Okay, so he's just making a point. You search the scriptures because you think they're going to give you eternal life. That's just a statement, cause and effect. But then he says this, And these, that's these Old Testament scriptures, are they which testify of me. Isn't that ironic? The very people that rejected Jesus thought they were scholars of the law, but Jesus said the law was pointing to me. How's your scholarship now? He said, you're not willing to come to me that you might have life. Even though you put your trust and hope in the very thing that points to me. So here's one way that where Romans 15, 4 fits within this category that the old things were written, things before time were written for our learning. Why? Because they point us to Jesus. Because everything that was written from Genesis 1 to Malachi chapter 4 is about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's all leading us to Jesus. And without Jesus, the Old Testament makes zero sense. But here's another thing. Without the Old Testament, Jesus makes zero sense. They're not independent. They're interdependent. They depend upon each other. It's valuable. Matthew 5, 17 Jesus said, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Now, before we read verse 18, I want you to know that some people have read this verse and concluded from that that the old law is still in existence today because Jesus clearly said he did not come to destroy the law. Okay, But let's just see what Jesus is really saying. Okay, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus fulfilled the law, if he fulfilled the law, that would be the reason it would be done away with. Because he fulfilled it. What Jesus is saying is, I did not come to abrogate the law. I did not come to contradict the law. I did not come to undo the law. I did not come to destroy the law because some would have accused him of doing that, doing things against the law of Moses. He said, no, what I came to do was do what the law has been pointing to for 1,500 years, which is I've come to fulfill the law. Verse 18, for assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. That has to do with Greek and Hebrew language, Let's just put it in our language. Not a cross of a T, not a dotting of the I, he said of the law, will what? Pass? What's he mean, pass? It won't fail. Not one dot or cross of a T will fail. Listen, till all is fulfilled. So he set a timer. Another passage that's parallel to this says it's easier for heaven and earth to pass. Now, think about this for a moment. Because what some have looked at is they've said, well, he said until heaven and earth pass, that is what we read about in 2 Peter 3, when the elements melt with fervent heat, the law would never pass. That's not what he said. That's not at all what he said. He said nothing will pass from the law. In fact, heaven and earth would pass before the law pass until all be fulfilled. Now, When was that to come? Well, Jesus just said, I came to fulfill. Did he fail? Or did he fulfill? He fulfilled, didn't he? Now, I I want you to take your Bible out for just a moment. We're not going to do a lot of reading, but I do have a couple of times I want you to read with me. We're going to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter (coughs) 8. I think that we can easily see how Jesus fulfilled the prophets, can't we? The prophecies concerning Jesus. But I want to ask another thought. Jesus made a statement here that the law would be fulfilled. And he made a distinction between the two, law and prophets. How did Jesus fulfill the law? Okay, Romans chapter 8. Let's just start in verse 1. We're just going to read a few verses here, down through verse 5. Or uh, Yeah, that'll be a good stopping point. Down through verse 5. Romans 8 and verse 1. Paul writing here says, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. The reason he says now is because in chapter 7 he just talked about what it was like for a man to be under the law of Moses. That at the end of the law of Moses, the situation of a man, no matter how much he willed to do right, the end of it was death. And then he says this in verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. The law brought condemnation, but he says, Now condemnation is not brought to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now listen to verse 3 and 4. Pay really close attention. For what the law could not do. What could the law not do? It couldn't free us couldn't make us right, couldn't give us life. And he says, for what the law could not do, now here's why, in that it was weak through the flesh. He's talking about our response to the law now. We were weak. The flesh could not fulfill the law. He says this, God did. By sending His own Son in a likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin or for sin, as the King James says, He condemned sin in the flesh. Now look at verse 4. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled the law because He lived the law. He was the first to live the law. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. What does that mean? What did the law require? Cursed is he that confirmeth not all of the words of the book to do them. That's Deuteronomy chapter 26 and verse 27. And what that means is this. When God gave the law, he put a qualifying factor over the entire law. And it was this. You have to keep every single law. All 613 commandments. Keep them or you're cursed. Jesus fulfilled the law. He met the requirement that God set, I about pointed up to the mountain again, it's not up there anymore. (laughs) At Mount Sinai, Jesus fulfilled the law in that way. So not just the prophets, but Jesus also fulfilled the law. And in doing that, the law could then be done away with. Okay, so let's go back to our chart for just a moment. And I want to just look through Paul's letters. And you say, well, the Acts of the Apostles is not Paul's letters. I get that. Uh, but I didn't want to just make a single slide for that. That's why they're all on here, okay? So the Acts of the Apostles, and I really thought there would have been more references to the Old Testament than just this, but 57 times the Old Testament is references, uh, referenced in the Acts of the Apostles. The majority of those are in Acts 2, Acts 3, Acts 7, where Stephen preached to the Pharisees, Acts 13, where Paul preached to the heathens, and Acts 19, uh, where Paul preaches another sermon. Most of the references are just in those five different sermons. 57 times in the Acts of the Apostles. As people taught Jesus, they refer back to the prophecies. Okay, Then in Romans and also in Hebrews, you have a very heavy dose of Old Testament reference. And why is that? Because both of these letters had the same goal. You say, well, hold on a minute. They were written to completely different demographics. That's right, but they both had the same goal. And you know what that goal was? To point people away from the old law which was done away with and righteousness through the law and toward Jesus Christ. And so in doing that, Paul takes the Old Testament and he pulls that in these books and he starts quoting those books to remind them of the nature of the old law, remind them of prophecies about Christ, remind them of how God's righteousness was to come about. Now let me ask you a question. Is the Old Testament important? Look at all these references. If the Old Testament is not important, why would they use them? And secondly, if we're not going to study the Old Testament, how do we expect to understand the New Testament? When there's so many references to the Old what do we do? Just read over them? Just pass over them? Not go back and look to see what it says? Just ignore them? Friends, we have to study the Old Testament to understand the New. And in particular, especially... We have to understand the Old Testament to understand the book of Revelation. 249 known references to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. That's a lot. And I'll tell you, if you ever go and sit down and take a couple of years to study the book of Revelation, because that's really about what it takes to connect all the different lines that go together, it's a very, very... Very long study in depth to link up all these dots (laughs) to help us understand what John was writing about in the book of Revelation. Now I want to go back to Isaiah where we started our study in part one for a moment. Whom shall he teach knowledge? Whom will he make to understand the message? In the King James, this is translated doctrine and it just means spoken message. Those Just weaned from milk, those just drawn from the breast. So the first thing he says is, who's going to understand? Those that are mature. Secondly, though, he says, precept must be upon precept. Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little and there a little. The reason I wanted to go back and reread this is for this reason. We have to be able to line up the dots. We need the Old Testament. We need it. It's good for us. Okay? Okay? So, we've talked about our need for the Old Testament. And uh, you said you were going to tell us what the Old Testament is. And uh, we're going to get into that in just a moment. I know I kind of flopped the points around just a little bit. Uh, What are the limits of the Old Testament? Well, number one, it's not an authority for religious practices in the Christian age. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, the Law of Moses is not a guiding factor for us. We don't go back to the law of Moses and go, oh, okay, there's the law for me today. Now I know what the law is. No, we don't do that, okay? We don't do that. Secondly, though, we can't look at the practices that were under the old law and try to adopt those practices. What does that tell us? That all the way up to Jesus' death on the cross, everything before that is Old Testament practice, Okay? You say, well, Jesus taught a lot of things that were regarding the new law. That's true. I'm not talking about what he taught. I'm talking about things that people did. For instance, as Jesus told the Pharisees uh, that you tithe anise and cumin and these other spices. And he said, you shouldn't have left the other undone. You should have done that, but done the other. Well, were we supposed to go tithe anise and cumin and spices? No, he was talking to people who were under the law at that time. Their example, their practice, is not our practice. There's other things we could look at, such as the thief on the cross. Jesus saved the thief on the cross before the gospel was ever preached. And people want to go back to the thief on the cross and say, I can be saved like the thief on the cross. No, you can't. Because he lived and died under the law of Moses. He never heard the gospel of Jesus. People say, well, he wasn't baptized. Well, you can't prove that, but even if you could, it wouldn't matter. Because while Jesus was on the earth, he said himself in Luke chapter 5, that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. And what Jesus did during his ministry was still under the old law. We don't live under the old law. We live under the New Testament. Romans chapter 2 and verse 14. You don't really, uh, this, this should not shock us, okay? This should not shock us. Uh, And I want to take just a side moment. If you're still in Romans, I want to go to Romans chapter 3 for just a moment because I think this is an important distinction to make. Just because we're not under the law of Moses does not mean we aren't under any law. That's not what it means. We're still under law today. Romans chapter 3, and we're going to go all the way down to the bottom of the chapter. Uh, Paul has been... In this discussion, I guess you call it a discussion, they weren't responding, he was writing, but he's reasoning with them about certain things. And one of the things he reasoned with them about is where does salvation come from? Is salvation the result of God's goodness, uh, I'm sorry, of man's goodness towards God or God's goodness toward man? And so he just outlines the gospel in uh, verses 23 through 26, talking about that we're justified through Jesus, we're redeemed through Jesus. Uh, He is our propitiation, as Brother Franklin said. Uh, taught about a few weeks ago. salvation's through Jesus. And so he concludes that, notice in verse 27, by saying, where is boasting then? Does anybody have a right to boast? If salvation is God's goodness toward man and not my goodness towards God, who can boast of their salvation? No one can. He says it's excluded by what law? The law of works? No, by the law of faith. Okay, so he's talking about the old law and the new law here. Notice, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. That's the law of Moses. We're not saved by the law of Moses. Okay, now I want to jump down to verse uh, 21. He says, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. This is a confusing statement. Uh, But I will tell you that the the Greek article that's translated the At the end of the verse is not in the original language. Do we make the law void through faith? Certainly not. We establish law. Law is established by faith. And I know we look at the New Testament and we look at it in a way where people want to get away from obedience and they want to get away from commandment. There's a lot of commandments in the New Testament. Those commandments are binding. You know what we call that when commandments are binding by an authority? We call it law. That's what it is. It's law. Just as if somebody else had had an authority set commandments, that is prohibitions and also permissions. Here in Pampa, Texas, we have a law. Why? Because there's authority established and we're under it. Are we under law today? Not the law of Moses. But are we still under law in that way? Yes. Yes. Yes, we are. Romans chapter 2 and verse 14, For with the Gentiles who do not have the law by, do by nature uh, the things in the law, these also having not the law, or not having law, I'm sorry, I'm quoting King James and trying to read New King James. I'm going to back up for just a minute. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these also not having the law are a law unto themselves. That's kind of wordy, isn't it? Here's what he's saying. Did the Gentiles have the law of Moses? Answer, no. But were they lawless? Well, yes, in their conduct they were, but were they under a law? Yes, they were. Not a written law. Not the law of Moses. But listen, verse 15. Who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them of the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. You know what he said? He said their heart and their conscience and their thoughts were the standard that they were judged by. They were under what we would call the law of the heart and mind. You say, well, how is that fair? Look at Romans one he He'd already established this point in the previous chapter. He said, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. You ever had somebody ask you the question, well, what is God going to do about all those people who live out way off in Timbuktu? And usually what they're doing is trying to connect themselves to those people off in Timbuktu, but they don't live in Timbuktu, so their question's really irrelevant. But let's just think about the question. What's God going to do about those people? Well, number one, who knows? (laughs) Why would I speak for God? But here's something I can bank on because Paul teaches it here in Romans chapter 1. These people didn't have the law. And he said, the wrath of God is revealed against those people. Why? And how could God be fair in doing that? Well, look at verse 19 and verse 20. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So maybe they haven't read the law, but you know what they had seen? A manifestation of the God of heaven. Look at verse 20. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Even these people who didn't have a written law were still under law to do what's right and to shun that which is wrong. All right, Hebrews chapter 9 and 15. What is the Old Testament? We ask that question. And as I said, we typically think of it as these 39 books from Genesis to Malachi. But when the Bible talks about the Old Testament, most of the time it's not referring to Genesis to Malachi. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15. As Paul was contrasting the Old Testament and the New Testament, he said this, and for this reason, that's talking of Jesus, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first covenant. So we can look at it this way, old and new, first New, first, Jesus is the testator of which covenant? The new one. We're under a new covenant. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator. Now let's think about this. He says it's a necessity to have a testator to die for the testament. Who died for the first one? Can you think of that? Who died? Who was the testator of the first, the Old Testament? Listen to what he says. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. I just want you to hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to it in a moment. But I want you to be thinking about that. Who was the testator of the Old Testament? What death occurred to dedicate the Old Covenant? 2 Corinthians three fourteen, But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. This is actually the only time I could find where the actual words Old and Testament were put together in the New Testament. And what's he talking about here? Genesis to Malachi? We'll look at the next verse. But even to this day when Moses is read, what was he talking about when he said Old Testament? The law of Moses. Why? Because it was the actual testament, it was the actual covenant that God made with the people. You say, okay, I get why you said we're getting into semantics now. Okay, that's fine, but it's also important to understand the distinction. Because that's what was done away with. Moses' law was done away with, not Genesis to Malachi. You say, well, yes, it was. No, it wasn't. We already noted that 249 different prophecies were fulfilled in the book of Revelation that were written in the book of Daniel, the book of Isaiah, and the book of Ezekiel. They weren't all fulfilled when Jesus died. Nor were they all done away with, because prophecy wasn't done away with, it was fulfilled. But he's talking about something that was done away with, the law and the authority of the law of Moses. That was what was done away with. And what I'm saying is, We can say the Old Testament was done away with, and we know what that means, right? That Moses' law was done away with. But sometimes we take these implications with us when we make that statement. And we need to be careful about that, because not everything was done away with at the death of Jesus. Hebrews chapter 9.18. So we ask the question, who was the testator and who died? Hebrews 9, verse 18, Therefore not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. Some of you may be thinking, you tricked me. Well, no human died to dedicate the Old Testament. But he's making a connection here about blood and how blood dedicated the First Testament to teach them when the first ended and the second one started. When Jesus, the testator of the new will, died, that blood and that death made the new will a force of strength. Okay, why are we looking at this again? Uh, Just to show you that there was a distinction that Jesus made, as we already noted, between the law and the prophets. So Old Testament, it contains a lot of different things. First of all, it contains uh, the first five books of the Bible, which are often known as the Pentateuch. You kids that are in school, you all know what a pentagon is, right? A five-sided shape, Penta, Pentateuch, five books, Pentateuch, five books, often referred to as just the law. Now, it wasn't all law of Moses, some of it was history As we showed, a very large amount of history just between Genesis chapter 1 and Exodus chapter 20. But then from Exodus 20 on through those books, what you have is the law of Moses contained in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And then also the book of Numbers, which shows us the wandering of the children through the wilderness. And uh, we're not going to get into all the various aspects of, of the book. But know that some of it was just simply history and you don't do away with history. It's just history. It didn't need to pass away, it didn't need to be fulfilled, it was just history, that's all it is. So there's a lot of history in the Old Testament as well. Okay, the law and the prophets were until John. The law and the prophets were until John. That kind of confuses things, doesn't it? Because we just talked about how the law and the prophets were until the death of Jesus. So let's look at, these are Jesus' words by the way. And let's examine them very carefully. The law and the prophets were until John, since that time, the kingdom of God is what? He didn't say it was established, he said it was preached. And what he means by that is the law and the prophets were being preached until John the Baptist came. And since then we've shifted our focus from the old law. We've shifted our our focus from the prophets and now what we're going to do is talk about the kingdom because all the law and the prophets are about to be fulfilled. Since that time, he says, the kingdom of God is preached. And it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle or the law to fail. You say, well, how is fail different from pass away? Okay, think about this. Has the law passed away? Yes, it has. Did the law ever fail, though? No, it did not. It didn't fail in God's purpose. Nor did Jesus fail when he fulfilled the law. The law did not fail, okay? It never failed. So what, John, what Jesus said here is different from what he said in Matthew chapter 5. Here he's making a point about the law and where the law was leading us and now what was happening with the law and the prophets. Did you know that there was a time in Israel's history during that 1,500 years when nobody prophesied? Most scholars agree it was about 400 years of silence. And this wasn't a shock to them, because Amos had actually prophesied about this time. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, that I will send a famine on the land. Not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of a hearing of the words of the Lord. He said, there's going to come a time when you are going to be starving, but not with food. You're going to be starving for the word of the Lord. Why do you suppose God did that? I don't know. <laughs> I just like asking questions, but I'll tell you... I, there's a reason why he brought, He said it to these people, because they weren't listening. He was telling them to repent. Now, how many of the prophets, that was their message, they came and they said repent? How many times? Over and over. And the people would repent for a while, and then they'd go back into their debauchery. And he says, there's going to come a time when you're going to want to hear what I'm saying, and they won't be there. Look at verse 12. He says, They shall wander from sea to sea and north to west. They shall run to and fro seeking the word of the Lord, but shall not find it. you ever been that hungry? I don't mean for food. <laughs> now, if we were out in the middle of the wilderness and we couldn't find food, we might be that desperate. I mean, have you ever been that hungry for the word of the Lord? Think about 400 years of no prophet. That wouldn't be weird for us, right? Because we've never seen a modern-day prophet. But to Israel, that'd be very strange to not have a prophet in their generation come and bring them a divine message that said, thus says the Lord God of Israel. But for 400 years, that didn't happen. What do you think they were doing? Well, Amos said they'd be scrambling about every direction that they could go, searching, trying to find the word of the Lord. And he says, you're not going to find it. The last thing they were left with was a clue. In the book of Malachi, that Elijah the prophet would come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. And he said, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Now think about this, 400 years of silence and all of a sudden, here's Elijah. That's what they're looking for. And that didn't happen. (laughs) You say, wait a minute, he said it's going to happen. Well, it didn't happen like they thought it was going to happen. Look at Luke chapter 1, 16. This is the angel, and he is speaking to Elizabeth and to Zechariah, her husband. And he's talking about John the Baptist. And he says, he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Listen, then he quotes Malachi 4 to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make a people prepared for the Lord. So it did poof. 400 years of no prophets, and then here shows this guy up wearing camel skin hair clothing. Be just as weird then as it was today. Nobody wore camel hair, okay? John looked like a weirdo. And he showed up out in the middle of the wilderness and he started preaching to the people, and everybody came to hear his message. You know why? Because they were starving. God starved the people for 400 years. Getting them ready for a time of being fed. And you know what happened? They didn't want it. They didn't want the food. What about us? I'll tell you, there are times that I just stop, take a step back and look at myself and go, you're starving. Not food. <laughs> Not physical food. Do we really want it? I want to end our study this afternoon with Luke chapter 9 and and, uh, we're not going to do a lot of detail. There's actually three different uh, accounts of this in the gospel. There's one in Matthew and also in Mark. I chose Luke for a specific reason because there's a couple of details in this that are not in the other two. Luke chapter 9, verse 28 through 35. And uh, you're going to recognize this. This is the Uh, account of the Mount of Transfiguration, as it's often referred to. And I want to talk about the significance of this event in Jesus' life as it pertains to what we've talked about this afternoon. Uh, This wasn't just some random event where Jesus went up and showed them His glory. This has a very uh, impactful purpose. Luke chapter 9 and verse 28. Now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James, I'm reading for the new King James, uh, and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So let's stop right there just for a moment. Let's soak this in. Uh, Jesus takes his inner circle, is what I will call James, John, and Peter. Because how many times we see that happening? These three get taken away with Jesus. So Jesus takes them apart into a mountain. They're accustomed to this. They're no stranger to this type of behavior. And they get up on the mountain and Jesus starts praying. Was that normal? Yes, it was normal. But then all of a sudden, uh, and I don't know if this would what it looked like. This is obviously a cartoon rendering or something of that nature. But all of a sudden they look at Jesus And he is shining brightly and one account talks about it being uh, as white as white can be. Was that normal? No. But then all of a sudden Moses and Elijah show up and start talking with Jesus. But no, here's why I chose to read Luke. It says that they appeared in glory. So here's these other two men and they're not looking like people either. They're Shining of some nature, and here's Peter, James, and John. You just think about them spectating this situation. Is it happening? Here's Jesus and the greatest prophet of Israel ever, and Moses the lawgiver, and they're just over here talking about Jesus' death. What would you be thinking at that moment? Well, let's continue our reading. Okay, we, we pick on Peter, okay? But but I'm trying to get you to understand this was not normal. Verse 32, But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Then it happened, as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he had said. You know why Peter probably said this? Because... Moses and Elijah, let's just call them this. They were legends, okay? They were legends to these people. Now, it doesn't mean that they didn't believe they were real. They believe they were real. But these are just people you talk about. You know, we talk about Moses who who died, uh, you know, eons ago, millennia ago. We don't expect him to show up. If he did, we'd freak out. And that's kind of what Peter's doing here. He's like, okay, here's these shining... Legends that have showed up to talk with Jesus, and I guess they're great. Let's build him a tabernacle. He didn't understand what was going on. He didn't know what he was saying. But what was really happening here? A teachable moment. That's what was happening. Okay, let's read the rest of our reading. Verse 33. Then it happened, as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. And let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son. Hear him. So what's the significance here? The law was about to be done away with. The prophets were about to be fulfilled. And the greatest representatives of both of those parties showed up to talk with Jesus here on the mountain in a glorified state. The law and the prophets embodied in these two men. And Peter sees the law and the prophets embodied and says, let's build tabernacles. And God brings a cloud on top of a mountain and speaks to them. Does that sound familiar? Can you think of some other time where a man of God went up on a mountain and a cloud came and God spoke out of the mountain? It was at Sinai. And what did God say to Peter? This is my son. Hear him. What's he mean? Moses had his time. Elijah had his time. This is my son. This is now. Hear him. Last passage. God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past. To the fathers, that's our and the ancestors of the faith, by the prophets. Has in these last days spoken unto us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds. Okay? It's all about balance. The Old Testament does have a value. We need to understand it. They are interdependent, but here's the reality: Christ's words are for us, his authority is in those words is for us and today we need to listen to those words we can learn from the old testament but we need to listen to the words of jesus and follow jesus example and follow those who jesus hand chose to give us his words in what we now know as the new testament i hope there's been something helpful to you in the study today uh we want to offer the invitation of christ at this time if you're here and you're not a christian we want to encourage you to become one Uh, If you are a Christian and you have some sort of need uh, that we can assist you with, come and have a seat and we will help you with that need as we stand and we sing the song that's been selected.